Welcome, everyone. You're listening to the Families and Stories podcast, where every story reveals the grace of God through someone's life. I'm Grandpa Jimmy, your host, and thank you for listening today. Amazingly, in some sports, there are real advantages to being five foot tall and 110 pounds. Riding thoroughbreds as a professional jockey at a world-class level is one of those. My guest today is a legend in the world of thoroughbred racing. He has won over 8,000 races. Included in those, just to mention a few, he's won the Belmont Stakes three times, the Preakness five times, and the holy grail of racing, the Kentucky Derby. He was also inducted into the National Museum of Racing Hall of Fame into 1991. And although his career has been amazing, his story is about much more than riding a winning horse in the biggest race of all times. His name is Pat Day, and Pat, welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you very much, Jimmy. It's, uh, it's nice to be on with you today. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. And before we get into really all of your life story, tell us a little bit about your family. Well, uh, I was raised up in the mountains there in Colorado and raised up near an area called Edwards. Uh, my father was a body and fender repairman. My mother was a stay-at-home mother until us kids were all in school, and then she substitute taught uh, as we went on through school. Well, see, it's nice to have a native Coloradoan on the program here. Uh, that's the only reason why I got on with you. When you told me you were from Colorado, <laughs> that, see that helps a lot. If you're from Colorado, that's that that'll bring in a lot of a lot of support. Maybe, maybe, and and you're married now. Yep, my wife and I got married, and uh, uh, well, we just celebrated our 41st anniversary. Sheila is from Louisiana. Uh, we met and married in Chicago, and we are currently living in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, my daughter Irene is ju just turned 32 in March. Uh, her and her husband, Eric, live here not too far from us in uh, here in Louisville. So everybody wants to know, how in the world did you become a jockey? How did you get from Colorado to Kentucky? Well, you know, Jim, I really believe without a doubt that my steps were divinely directed. Uh, as I shared with you, I was, I was raised up in the mountains, up in Edwards. There was no horse racing in that area, but rodeo was a summertime sport. And uh, so I, I, uh, Participated in rodeos, started when I was about nine in Little Richard's rodeos, junior rodeos. Uh, was on the rodeo team my junior and senior year in high school. And then when I graduated, I had a, a desire to be a professional bull rider. And so I was pursuing that uh, with a very limited amount of success, I might add. Uh, and in the course of my travels, I met individuals that inquired as to whether I'd ever thought about being a jockey. Uh, I'm four foot eleven. I weigh today, I weigh 115 pounds, but during the time that I was riding, I was, I was riding around a hundred pounds all the time. So making weight was no, not sir. a problem no, for sir. you. But uh, I don't know if it was because of my small stature and competitive spirit or my inability to ride bulls that they would uh, inquire as to whether I, I should be a jockey or not. But, uh, <laughs> one, one fellow gave me his name and number and said, I know some people in the horse racing industry. If you have an interest, give me a call, and, and I'll see if I can't get you started. Well, maybe they thought – maybe he thought anybody crazy enough to get on a bull weighing 100 pounds could uh, ride a horse. It's possible. Or maybe he saw something in me. But at any rate, I, <laughs> uh, in the fall of 72, I ended the rodeo season. I kick around what to do, and I said, well, let's let's try this being a jockey. 
I'd never been to the races. I'd never seen a race on TV. I, I knew I knew very little about horse racing. I was familiar with the name Bill Shoemaker, Eddie O'Carroll, and the Kentucky Derby. And that was the extent of my knowledge about the great sport of horse racing. So uh, I called this fellow. He got me a job on a thoroughbred farm in Riverside, California. Uh, so I went out there in January of 1973. I sat down with the farm owner and farm manager, and uh, they said, you want to be a jockey? I said, yep, I want to be a jockey. And they said, well, this is what we think you need to do. You need to be on the farm for two to three years, learn the business from the ground up, which I might add is the absolute correct way to go. At the end of that two to three year period, depending on how quickly you catch on, uh, then we'll send you to the racetrack. You'll go to work for a, a horse trainer there. You'll experience life at the racetrack. You'll continue to uh, exercise horses and hone your skills. You'll watch the races, study the films, do that for another year, and you'll be ready to start riding. Well, at the end of a month of uh, uh, predominantly menial farm labor, I said, I don't want to do this for three. I didn't have a clue what I was trying to become. And so I left. I said, no, I'm, uh, I'm not going to be here for three years trying to, trying to become a jockey. I'm going to go back and uh, pursue a career as a bull rider. Uh, but that's where I know that, that God was in the mix. A couple of months later, I found myself on, of all places, a racetrack in Arizona. And uh, I met a fellow that uh, had, had been involved in rodeo. He was a professional uh, team roper. And he had started training racehorses just a few years earlier, a fellow named Carl Pugh. And uh, him and I became best of friends. I started getting on his horses and working with him, working around the barn. By the middle of the summer, I, I told Carl, I said, Carl, I, I want to start riding. Uh, I want to, I want to compete. I want to get in the middle of it. And uh, so he agreed to let me ride some of his horses. And on July 29th, 1973, seven short months after I'd been on the farm in California, I won my first horse race. We went back to, uh, we went to California that fall for the uh, LA County Fair uh, at Pomona. And uh, I rode a horse for Carl there called Continental Kid. The horse won. And uh, when I came out of the jockey's room that evening, uh, the farm manager uh, uh, was standing there, Gene Cummings. And I seen him. I said, hello, Mr. Cummings. And he said, it is you. Uh, he couldn't believe that I was the same man that had been on the farm in January. Testimony to the God-given talent and ability that the Lord had blessed me with. Well, you know, one thing that uh, Otto Thorworth taught me or told me rather about you was he said, there's something that's unfair about the way Pat rides. And I said, what's that? He said, he just can sense everything about these horses. It's like he can almost talk to them. <laughs> he knows exactly what they're going to do. So that was in you from the yeah, early on. Yeah. You know, by January of 1974, I was the leading rider at a racetrack in Arizona called Turf Paradise. And Turf Paradise is not uh, Churchill Downs or Belmont Park or Santa Anita, but it's a very competitive race meet. And, and the mere fact that I'd only been a, around racing for a year and to be the leading rider anywhere was nothing short of miraculous. Again, just testimony to the God-given talent and ability that the Lord had blessed me with. Now, were you a believer then? I wouldn't say I was a non-believer. I was raised in a Christian home, raised in, and in, in, I was confirmed in the Lutheran faith, but I didn't have a relationship with the Lord. Uh, if you'd asked me if I believed in God, I'd have said yes. When something comes so fast and so easy, uh, we have a tendency to not respect and appreciate that. And I was that way. At the end of the racing program, it didn't matter how many races I had won, uh, I was still looking for higher highs. Uh, 
uh, drugs and alcohol was readily available. And I found myself led into that lifestyle, uh, drinking, partying, carrying on all night long, riding in the daytime. Uh, and, and again, being very successful. And then in, uh, 1979, I met in, well, in 1978, actually, I started going out with my wife, 1979, we got married. Uh, that, that brought some stability and purpose to my life, but there was still something missing. Uh, in 1982, I was in a position to be leading writer in North America. Uh, I thought for sure that that would be what I was looking for. So you, you had progressed to the point where you were a top writer in the whole nation yes, by sir. far. Yes, sir. And, and I was, you know, periodically I would, I would come to my senses and look around and, it, you know, I, everything that I had, the world was, te- would tell you that that was supposed to make you happy. It was supposed to make you fulfilled and content. I wasn't happy. Uh, I was, I had a beautiful wife and a successful career, but there was something missing. And so in 1982, as I said, I had, a, a, I was in a position to be leading writer in North America. And that, I thought that was it. I thought, man, if I could be the leading writer in North America, I could have some national acclaim. I had my name up in lights, so to speak. I would, I would never have another bad day. That I would be fulfilled. Well, you know, when we were, we were speaking on the phone, you said something to me that was happening to you at that particular time. You said it was like I was hanging on by a thread. Well, I didn't realize that at the time, but when I look back, yes. You know, we, we won the national writing title in, in 82. Early in 83, I went on a two-week bender celebrating. And when I came out of my uh, alcohol and drug-induced stupor and took a personal inventory, uh, that fleeting feeling of succeeding was gone. Uh, not to take away from, from uh, you know, winning the national writing title was tremendous, a tremendous accomplishment. And I'm very proud of all that the Lord uh, allowed me to accomplish. But uh, I realized that it would not, could not fill this void in my heart. Um, and as I said, I, I've got a beautiful wife, successful career, uh, everything. See, I, I have everything the world has to offer, and I'm unhappy. And I remember going out at night, Jim, and looking up into the sky and saying, what am I here for? What, what is my purpose? I wasn't getting any answers. 1983, I was the leading writer again. And uh, another, you know, again, not to take away from, from the tremendous accomplishment, but it, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't long lasting satisfaction. It wasn't the joy and contentment that I was led to believe it would be. You know, the world would have you to believe that once you get the six figure income and a big house in the suburbs and uh, uh, the corner office with your name over the door, uh, that's, that's success. And that's supposed to make you happy and contented, fulfilled. I wasn't fulfilled. And uh, so in January of 1984, my wife and I were there in Colorado with my family. Uh, January 27th, 1984, uh, Sheila drove me into Denver. I got on a plane, flew to Miami, Florida, where I was scheduled to ride in a race the next day. I got into Miami uh, late in the evening, checked into a hotel room, uh, flipped the TV set on, as is my habit when I'm getting ready, you know, when I'm traveling by myself, just to have some noise in the room. Started getting ready for bed. The program on that particular channel was a Jimmy Swigert televised crusade. I was looking for answers, but I didn't think that Jimmy Swigert had the answers for me. The last thing I wanted to listen to was some television evangelist. And so I ran through the dial, you know, through the channels very quickly. Nothing got my attention. And uh, so I flipped the TV set off and went to bed. As soon as my head hit the pillow, I fell asleep. 
a deep sleep, so deep that when I awoke, I thought that I'd been sleeping for six or eight hours. But I awoke to the distinct feeling that I was not by myself in that hotel room. Now, I sat upright in bed. I looked around the room. I couldn't see anything, but I could feel a presence there with me. And I don't know if at that moment the Lord prompted me to get up and, and turn the TV on, or if I'd done that on my own accord, thinking, let me get the TV on, get some noise, get some light in here, and maybe this feeling would dissipate. Maybe this feeling would go away. I walked over, turned the TV set on. As the picture materialized on the screen, I realized instantly that I've not been sleeping six or eight hours. Jimmy Swigert's still on TV. It was right at the end of the program when he was extending the invitation to the viewing audience, to any and all that would care to receive Christ as our Savior. And at that moment, it was like the scales were removed from my eyes. I recognized and realized the presence there with me was the spirit of the living God. And this was my personal altar call. I just, I knew that I knew that I knew that that's what was missing. And I fell to my knees and wept and cried and and invited Christ into my life, um, never to be the same again. But, you know, I, I say that I invited Christ into my life. But sometime later, as I reflected back on my life, I remembered an incident that occurred when I was 13. Uh, there was a family from Texas moved up close to us there in, in uh, Edwards. And they were Southern Baptist by denomination, very evangelical. They wanted to talk about Jesus all the time. And I happened to get a job working for them the summer of my 13th year. And I would ride my pony over there and, and do some work around the ranch house. Mrs. Allen, their, their last name was Allen. Mrs. Allen would call me and she'd prepared a little bit of lunch. And, and so she would bless the meal and we would eat lunch and talk about what she had for me to do. And, and I would get up and, and uh, go back to work. It's one day when I'd finished eating, I said, if you'll excuse me, I'm, I'm going to go back to work now. And she said, would you wait just a minute? I would like to talk to you. And, uh, made me a little bit nervous, uh, by this time, they had acquired the reputation of being Jesus freaks and Bible thumpers. Seemed that the only thing I really wanted to talk about was Jesus in the Bible. And uh, when she said, would you wait just a minute? I want to talk to you. I may, It made me a little nervous. I thought, I, yep, she's going to want to be preaching to me. But she cleared off the table and brought out the old felt board with all the figurines, if you remember from the Sunday school days. And, and, yes, she, yes, I and so she she proceeded to tell me all about the life and times of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, I wish I could say that I was listening attentively to her. I wasn't. I was concerned that somebody might walk in and catch me in this, what I would deem to be a very embarrassing situation. Completed sharing the message of salvation. She asked me if I would pray with her. By this time, I'm I'm ready to do anything just to get out of the house. And so. She reached across the table, i never forget, took a hold of my hands, and she said, repeat after me, and she led me in the sinner's prayer. And I really believe, Jim, at that time that the Lord came into my heart. I believe that from that moment forward, God was directing my footsteps, unbeknownst to me. Fast forward to, to 84, and I thought it was that night that I invited him into my heart, but I didn't. He had been in my heart, but I'd relegated him to the back room. Uh, God doesn't want to be just your savior, just your lucky charm, just your one you turn to in a moment of need. If you want to enjoy the abundant life, you know, Jesus says in John 10, 10, I come that you might have life and have it to the full. If you're looking for the full and abundant life, that is a direct result of a personal, intimate, ongoing and ever growing relationship with Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. 
What happened that night in that hotel room, Jim, I invited Christ out of the back room and offered him his rightful place on the throne of my heart. I acknowledged him not just as my Savior, but as my Lord and Savior and fully committed my life to him. After that experience, you get up the next day, and uh, so any drinking or drugs or anything like that was over with? Absolutely. You know, the Bible says that when you become born again, I tell people today that the spiritual conception occurred when I was 13. The birth occurred at 30 in that hotel room, and it was a difficult pregnancy because over those 17 years, I nearly self-destructed. If it wasn't but for the hand of God upon me and the grace of God, I wouldn't have survived. I, 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 I very nearly self-destructed in that 17-year period. What happened after that? You, you, you got saved, not just saved. But, but Jesus really became the Lord of your life. Then what began to happen in racing? Well, you know, the, the next morning when I got up, I, I knew that some the, the world was different. When I walked outside, the sky was bluer, the grass was green. It was like, wow, this is vibrant. It was alive. The world hadn't changed. I had changed. But how much I didn't realize until the next night I got on the plane to fly back to Colorado. When the stewardess come down the aisle with the drink cart, she got to me and she said, would you like something to drink? And I snarled at her, a, a voice that I'd never heard before. I said, no. And she gave me a real funny look and walked on. And I thought about that. I'm like, why didn't I just say no, thank you? Why was I so adamant? No, I don't want to drink. And then as I, as I thought about that just a moment, I realized I was reminded that normally when she would come by with that drink cart, I wouldn't get one of those little bottles of booze. I would get two because I didn't want to run out before she got back. And at that moment, I realized that I not only did I not want the alcoholic beverage, but I found it to be repulsive. And as I contemplated on that for just a moment, I realized that there was no desire. I was set free. I have since come to come to, to know the scripture that says that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes before him, before the Father, except through him. Elsewhere, it says, if you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. God actually delivers you. I mean, that that is uh, more rare than you might know. Well, over the over the um, since that time, I've come to realize that it was a miraculous deliverance from the bondage of drugs and alcohol, uh, a burning desire to serve Him, to be a to 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 grow to know Him better. Uh, it was shortly after that that I met the chaplain at the racetrack, and uh, I was not knowing what what do I do with my life now. I met the chaplain at the racetrack. Uh, I shared with him my dilemma. I, I don't know if I should stay in racing. Should I go to the seminary, become a minister? What do, what do I do? And uh, he came up with a very novel idea. He said, let's pray about it. <laughs> pray about it. Yeah, okay. Let's inquire of the master what he would have for you to do. And so we did. We prayed. We sought the scriptures. Through that process, he had revealed to me that he had saved me to work within racing, not to leave it. Take the talent. Take the ability do the very best that I possibly could. You know, the word says, do all that you do with all of your heart is doing it unto the Lord and not unto man. Do all that you do with all of your heart. Do it to the best of your ability. But I was to do that, take the talent and ability, do the best that I could, all the while being open for opportunities to share the gospel, to tell people about Jesus. And uh, with that, with that newfound purpose uh, and being set free from the bondage of drugs and alcohol, my my career was launched in outer space. Uh, over the next 22 years, I had an unparalleled career. I uh, won all the major races in the country, uh, numerous uh, uh, awards and, and accolades, uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame, 
all of which was not going to happen uh, if I don't make that change that night in that hotel room. Now that that is pretty amazing. And so, so when did you retire from? All uh, I retired in two thousand and five, uh, and I didn't come to the decision to retire easily. Uh, I was really wrestling. There was some stuff going on inside of me that I just couldn't get a handle on, <clears throat> and so. Friend of mine has a, a cabin over on the Kentucky River, not too far from here. And he said, You go and stay and uh, seek the face of the Lord as long as you need to. The first night I was there was on a Thursday evening. The sun started to set. It was a beautiful evening, and I, I got down on my knees. And uh, initially, I, I tried to cut a deal with the Lord. I was, uh, I, I, as I said, I didn't want to retire. And uh, so I said, Father, I, I know that you, you, you have, you, you know, you know all, but maybe you don't know that I'm only 30 winners behind Bill Shoemaker on the all-time win list. I could, I could surpass him quick. So, so you were going to inform him in yeah. case he had yeah. missed that someplace. Uh, I, I could surpass him in, in <laughs> by the end of the year. And, and, you know, 30, 30 winners was, uh, was nothing, uh, as, as my career was going. And I thought it would look real good on my resume to be, have surpassed Bill Shoemaker on the all-time win list. Well, that didn't get his attention. So then I said, Father, I know you own the cattle on a thousand hills, but maybe you don't know that my horses have ran out nearly 300 million in person. Uh, I could do that by the end of the year, just, you know, but I can't stay in the game if you don't rekindle the flame. And uh, that didn't have, that didn't carry any weight. <laughs> and then I finally came to my senses and I said, Father, I just want to do what you want me to do. I just want all of you to have all of me. Send me where you'd have me to go. Do with me as you'd have me to do. And at that moment, it was the most incredible thing. It was like he picked me up and held me, uh, like you would hold your your little grandchild when they fall down and skin their knee. And and that that oneness with the Lord was just indescribable. Um, and that lasted for three days. On the third day, I got up and uh, was getting a little cabin fever. So let me just take a little drive off through the Kentucky countryside. I'm driving. No radio, just had the windows down, taking in the beauty of God's creation. I don't recall inviting Satan to get into the car with me, but all of a sudden there he was tapping me on my shoulder. And I'm like, what, 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 what do you want? And he said, what are you going to do? You're out here looking for answers. Are you going to keep writing? You're going to retire. You know, you got to make a decision here. And I just recall that my stomach was tied in a knot. And through clenched teeth, I said, it's time, isn't it? I knew that I knew it was time to close the book on my writing career and move forward doing God only knows what. But almost immediately, there was renewed enthusiasm in the pit of my stomach not to go back and to win races, not to go back and ride races, but to go and to tell people about the awesome joy of having the love of our Savior in your heart. That really leads to this. What are you doing now? You're doing some pretty cool things. Well, I, today what I'm doing is not unlike what I've done since 1984 when, when I first came to Christ, uh, except today I'm doing it without the added distraction of a full-time career. Currently the president of the Council for the Kentucky Racetrack Chaplaincy, uh, overseeing, uplifting, encouraging, and assisting uh, all the chaplains here in Kentucky as they work to share the gospel message with the people in the horse racing industry. And then I'm, tr I'm privileged to have opportunities to, uh, to speak on occasion, uh, just share my testimony. But, you know, as, as the Lord's ambassadors, uh, that's not just for an hour on Sunday morning or for a half hour here on your podcast. Jim, that's 24-7. 
We are the Lord's representatives 24-7. And so it's my heart's cry, my heart's desire, that with all that I come in contact with, that I would be a godly witness, that I would be a living testimony to the saving grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that I would be a positive influence in the lives of all that I would be privileged to come in contact with. When I get up in the morning, I know that God has divine appointments already already in, in place for me. I just need to be open and sensitive and then be bold and take advantage of those opportunities to share the gospel message. You're kind of working the backside of the uh, Yes, sir. The, the ministry is for all of those inside the racetrack, the, you know, the office staff, but in, in the front side, we call it, uh, you know, the, the, all of the general manager and all of the office personnel, but predominantly with those that work directly with the horses. You know, the ministry itself was founded by a fellow named Salty Roberts 50-some years ago. Uh, he was a backstretch worker. Uh, he, he was found himself in the throes of alcohol. Uh, one night he came in, was going to blow his brains out. Uh, somehow he, he had, somebody had given him a religious tract, uh, gospel tract a while before that, that he just throwed up on his uh, nightstand that came into his hand. He read it, got convicted, got saved. And after that, he had a burden on his heart for the people that he worked with, you know, knowing that it's seven days a week. The racetrack is like a farm. It's uh, you, you, you've got it. Those horses need and deserve and receive care every day. And so the people that work directly with them weren't able to get off the track and to go to a church of their choice. So he said, if they can't get off the track and go to a church, let's bring church to them. And out of that, that burden, that vision the Lord gave him was birthed the, the, the racetrack chaplaincy. Uh, currently, I think there's about 60 chaplains throughout North America on a number of different racetracks that are uh, actively endeavoring to share the gospel message with the workforce, uh, the people that make up the great sport of horse racing. So are you primarily yourself working out of Churchill Downs? Well, the, the, we have two chaplains working at cha- uh, Churchill Downs. Uh, we have one, no, we have two chaplains working at Ellis Park, which is located in Western Kentucky. <clears throat> and then we have one chaplain that's working in Northern Kentucky at a racetrack called Turfway Park as well as across the river in Cincinnati, a racetrack called Belterra. And so right now my job is just to oversee their activities, uh, help provide them with what they need to do the work the Lord has called them to. Uh, so I'm, I'm working out of my home. On the backside of every sport, not just the horse racing, but the backside of every sport, there's a need for someone to be in there with the gospel because there's a lot of hurting people that would never admit it. Planet Earth is not a playground. We've worked hard over the years to try to make it a huge Disneyland or Disney World or theme park and, and, you know, with all of our extracurricular activities and things to keep us entertained and, quote, make us feel good. But the reality is planet Earth is a battlefield. Uh, the battle rages 24-7 between the forces of good or God and the forces of evil, the devil and the fallen angels. What hangs in the balance are the souls of mankind. Well, that is that is exactly right. And so, you know, Jesus said that he desired that none would perish but that all would come to the knowledge of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, that all would come to repentance. Uh, well, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How can they come if they don't hear? And how can they hear if somebody don't go and tell them? And so, you know, the great commission is for all that would call upon the name of the Lord. We're to go forth and make disciples of all nations. I'm glad you're doing that on the backside. Let me ask you this question. You kind of touched on it. But, you know, so many young people today in our culture of fame and fortune, 
They all they all want to reach those kinds of pinnacles. They want to be famous. They want to make money, and they think it's going to make them happy. And you've already touched on that. But what would you say to young people who think that's their future? Fame and fortune is fleeting, and it's it's. Uh, please don't buy into the lie that if you get high enough on the ladder, that that's going to equate to joy, peace, and contentment. Joy, peace, contentment, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of purpose is found only in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins at the moment that you invite Christ into your life and continues on throughout all eternity. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, Jesus Jesus said, I come that you might have life and have it to the full. The devil comes only to rob, to kill, and destroy. And uh, ultimately, we, we find ourselves fighting hard to climb that ladder of success, believing that when we get to the top, uh, we're going to have a, never have another bad day. And that's a lie right out of the pits of hell. Yep, it sure is. So uh, if somebody wanted to talk to you, I mean, do you, have you done anything as far as books go or anything like that? I didn't um, ask you that No, sir, I haven't, Jim. I've, I've been approached by several authors uh, to, to write my story. Um, thus far, we, we've not embarked on that. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you or needed help or was just thinking maybe this, this man can really help me, is that possible? Uh, absolutely. Uh, please give them my email address. It's pad1053 at aol.com. Send me, a, send me an email uh, with your correspondence information and question, and uh, I'll make every effort to get back to you. And, and uh, with the Lord's help, we'll, we'll address that issue. Well, thank you, brother. I'll tell you what, that's wonderful. And it's a good lesson for all of us, not just the young kids, to understand that fame and fortune is not the end all of everything. It's only a relationship with Jesus that matters. Yes, in sir. The end. So, uh, Pat, thank you, sir, for being here today. I appreciate it so much. And uh, if you're willing, I'd love to have you back. At well, time. I would look forward to that opportunity, Jim. Thank you. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to be on with you. Uh, I pray for the all of those that would uh, that would hear this podcast. I pray that um, I pray that you'd come to know and to love and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy the peace and contentment that I experience on a full time basis. Uh, the joy of knowing, loving, trusting in the Lord, knowing that your life is in His hands. He is on the throne and in control. Our victory is secure and salvation is secure in Him. Well, praise God. I agree with that completely. Thank you for being here, sir. And thank all of you that are listening for listening. I hope this has been a blessing to you. God bless you and have a good day.